That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks for taking the time over this next hour to spend with me as we explore uh, connection, as we explore conversations that get below maybe uh, the debates that we normally have, the, the news of the world, the, the way we normally look at things. Uh, and hopefully it's fun and educational and entertaining along the way. Uh, thanks so much for joining me if you're joining me on Kixie Radio in Seattle. Uh, but you can also find this uh, show and episodes, all the episodes of this show, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com. You can also reach out to me and connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. Just look that up and you'll find me rather quickly. Be happy to chat with you, hear your thoughts about the show, uh, tell me some stories that you think might be kind of fun to hear about on the air, and uh, we'll just see where it goes. Thanks so much to this show's sponsor right away. I'd like to thank Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of the hundreds of careers that are available in the aerospace industry around the world. But it's about a lot more than just that. It's also about helping students better connect with themselves to better learn 21st century skills, as they call them, to learn self-advocacy, and to learn how to better help themselves, their families, and their communities. If you'd like to know more about the wonderful work that Airway Science for Kids does, check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. You'll hear a little more about them during the show breaks today. All right, so uh, really excited uh, to be back here in the studio talking uh, with all of you. This is the episode that I'm recording for uh, the Martin Luther King holiday. So I'm actually recording a little bit in advance for this. Uh, but we are going to be talking a little bit about that today. Uh, but just as a reminder, kind of started playing around with the format of the show a little bit more. Still going to lead off here shortly in, with the news. Uh, and then I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to move that going forward in the second segment. Tell you a story of some sort. It could be from history. It could be from my own life. It, it could be something that somebody brought to me uh, that they'd like, uh, they'd like me to talk about. And then in the third segment, um, some catch-up on where I'm at. And that could be about just about anything going on with me, probably something about my writing or some realizations I'm making or my growing coaching career, uh, just that type of thing. That's how we're going to kind of do this going forward. So, uh, yeah, it just seemed like the right time. 2023, 100th episode of the show is coming up. Uh, and, you know, just seemed like a, a good thing to do. And I kicked it off last week. Really enjoyed it, so I think it's going to keep working. So let's jump right into it and start in our first segment with the news in the sec- it, what I call What in the World is Going On. The battles in and around Solidar are among the bloodiest of Russia's 11-month war on Ukraine. Here, Russian soldiers seek cover, but with the help of a drone, Ukrainian fighters take them out. The Ukrainians have suffered extreme casualties too, though. This daring rescue mission dashing across contested land got some of the injured out. 
The situation is difficult but stable, says this soldier, who insisted Ukraine has not fully conceded the town. It seems like with each new week, there's another name, another name of a city, whether it's Kherson or in this case, Solidar, that uh, we are learning about. And once again, this battle is becoming uh, much bigger in the larger news because it does seem to be a focal point right now for the Ukrainian counteroffensive against the Russian invasion. And Solidar is a really important salt mining city right in uh, the middle of the occupied uh, territories in the east. And uh, Ukraine is taking significant casualties, more so than they have uh, in a lot of other areas during the, in the war. And Russia is as well. Meanwhile, Russia has replaced its, uh, its commanders once again in, uh, in Ukraine, just a sign increasingly that Vladimir Putin is more and more dissatisfied with the performance of his military and usually not a very good sign. Uh, with that, of course, though, means that as a war that was supposed to last 10 days and that was the planning that it was uh, that it was given by Putin and his generals, the further we get out from that, the more and more improvisation is going on. And when large militaries the size of the Russian military are forced into that kind of improvisation uh, and that kind of unexpected set of consequences that come from that, uh, bad things tend to happen. Uh, a lot more people are getting killed because of that. Because it's not good when modern militaries make things up as they go along. So Solidar is going to continue to be uh, really important in the news moving forward, as is uh, the degree to which all of this in the Russian high command continues to deteriorate. Uh, Sometimes it feels, at least to me, like it's uh, a race uh, between those two things to see how the war is going to turn out. The degree to which Ukraine can withstand the types of casualties and destruction that they're facing and to what degree the Russians can hold it together at the highest levels uh, to effectively run this war. Meanwhile, the footage that comes out of Ukraine, these cities, Solidar and others, looks increasingly like the old World War II footage you saw of the Eastern Front of cities that are barely recognizable anymore, really just piles of rubble and uh, shattered skeletons of buildings uh, and that type of thing. Uh, More and more sobering imagery as time goes by. Uh, Meanwhile, things in Iran continue to be tough as well. Across Iran, families gather to mourn these days at an increasing pace as the regime steps up its crackdown on protesters. Two more young men were hanged at dawn on Saturday. Mohammad Mahdi Karami was 22 years old and a karate champion. Syed Mohammad Hosseini, a children's martial arts coach, was 39. They were hanged for killing members of the security forces. <laughs> Karami's father also attended Hosseini's burial. More and more, this is becoming the more the video footage that is coming out of Iran. Certainly, all the protests continue on. And uh, as was mentioned there, there are a lot of places where uh, the crackdowns are starting to have an effect, particularly in the capital of Tehran and elsewhere, uh, because things are simply getting more and more violent. Certain counts right now have almost 20,000 Iranians having been detained since September, since the beginning of these protests, and dozens killed, at least that's the official uh, or the the semi-official number, uh, killed in the protests, and executions are on the rise. And once again, just like I mentioned with Ukraine, it's the story of two sides. Who can last longer? Can the national, uh, really the groundswell of support for the protests, can that, can people continue to 
put themselves out there in spite of increasing losses uh, that really hit home for everyday Iranians? Uh, can they hold out against a regime that is showing it is willing to use outright violence against its own people? And then, of course, it begs the question that what happens on the other end? Certainly, if the regime ends up quelling these uh, protests and this revolution, how are things going to go for them in the long run? In some ways, when the genie of revolution is let out of the bottle, even if it doesn't succeed in a given moment, it is not going to be back in that bottle, right? You're going to, going to have for the people who survived this, who get through this, if the regime proves victorious, who are going to have lifetime, deep lifetime resentments and anger against the regime. And it will only be a matter of time before this happens again. All right. And Last piece of news for the day, just since it is a holiday, an important holiday, uh, just a reminder of why we have this holiday in the first place. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That, of course, a clip from Martin Luther King Jr.'s, probably his most famous speech from uh, the 28th of August, 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial, the famous I Have a Dream speech. And, of course, this is the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. His birthday is January 15th. Uh, but we celebrate it every year as a federal holiday. It's one of the newer ones that's out there. Uh, and it's one that more and more places uh, recognize uh, with days off and that type of thing. And, and we're no exception here at this show. And hence why I'm recording it a little bit uh, in advance. And oftentimes when we think of uh, the civil rights movement, oftentimes everything does come back to Martin Luther King Jr. for very, very legitimate reasons, even though he was one of many who were involved in the larger civil rights movement. And, uh, of course, he became more prominent in the movement itself in the late 50s after Rosa Parks uh, refused to uh, move from the front of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, to make room for a white man, which was the rule under Jim Crow. He became more famous after that because of his advocacy in the city of Montgomery, and he helped lead the Montgomery bus boycott that many people see as the real beginning of the civil rights movement, at least in the 50s and 60s. And it culminated, that stretch there culminated from 55 to 1968. And of course, in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th of that year. And in between, of course, uh, because of his work and many others who uh, supported what he did and his support for others, you had the passing of the uh, Civil Rights Act in 1964, the American Voting Rights Act in 1965, both of which are seen as cornerstones of uh, 20th century legislation in uh, the United States to help bring about a, uh, as he put it, uh, bring the America closer to its ideals of everyone being created equal. And of course, for all those reasons and many others, uh, number of years ago, a federal holiday was established uh, in his honor. And I think of uh, every year when this holiday rolls around, I think of the course in my life of learning about this. Of course, I lived uh, most of my life in uh, Hawaii early on in my life. And then 
in Southern California, very far away from uh, anything on the mainland, really, uh, in terms of the civil rights movement. And of course, I was born in 1973 at the very other end of, of that heyday of the civil rights movement, at the very end of the Vietnam War, and really grew up in an era that was reckoning with the lessons of those intertwined uh, eras, the Vietnam and the civil rights era. And I remember growing up oftentimes very confused uh, by the story. I, I didn't understand why there had been a thing called segregation to begin with. And I didn't understand the idea of singling people out because they happened to look different. Uh, it was something that I just simply grew up not understanding. And my, my family was uh, very clear in being against that type of, of racism and segregation as well. And that goes back in my family. And so it was always a very interesting thing for me to learn about. And I first learned about Martin Luther King Jr. when I was about nine or 10 years old. I remember my parents sitting me down with an encyclopedia uh, and they had me read about him. And uh, I remember I remember being uh, really impressed by, by him and his words. And I remember being saddened by the fact that he was killed, frightened by that actually. Uh, the idea of assassination was just something appalling to me as a kid although it's still appalling to me as an adult, <laughs> but nevertheless, back then it was, it, was, it was part of an introduction for me as a young child into the realities of the world and the realities of the United States and that the U.S. history, despite all the things I was learning that I liked about it, that I was interested in, its victories in World War II for, you know, most prominently, I was learning steadily from that point on that American history, like history just about anywhere else, is very much a mixed bag of positive developments and things that just make you go, wait, what? How, how is that possible? That is not good. And this, of course, the story of the civil rights movement is one of uh, heroic actions, not just on the part of Martin Luther King Jr., but, but everyday Americans, particularly people of color and black Americans, uh, that culminated in something that fundamentally changed some elements of the fabric in American society. And of course, today we're still seeing reckonings with that. Uh, and you could say some pushback uh, in various quarters of the country against the lessons of the civil rights movement. And so to me, the, the holiday every year when it comes around really stands out as a good reminder to me, not only of how I came to learn more about this and came more to um, really support the ideals of more uh, equal rights in this country for all groups, whether we're talking about ethnic uh, whether we're talking about gender, whatever you, whatever we're saying, it not only has me thinking about that, but it also uh, has me thinking too about how do groups today move forward to protect these things. I talked last week about Abraham Lincoln's larger view about uh, democracy not being a given and the importance of it continuing to grow in the United States because people were paying attention to it. Our country is large enough, big enough in every way these days that the rest of the world does pay attention to it. And what lessons can they draw from it these days? I'm not so happy with the lessons the world might be drawing from the American experience in the last decade or so. But I also find myself still believing that this is a country that knows how to turn corners, knows how to turn things around, and knows how to do things differently. And I tend to look for those things. Um, not just out of a sense of hope, but also as a sense of proof that uh, good things can and do happen here and can continue to grow that way. So that's why we are here. And so I, 
the story I want to tell you today uh, has a lot to do with what I just mentioned. It's not so much about the civil rights movement itself, but it is connected to it. And it's connected to it uh, through, in my own life, by a really profound experience that I had back in 1998. And uh, I was on a, a trip on my own. It was my very first visit to Washington, D.C., and I was there for some, some pretty big reasons, and I was there on my own. And one day when I was there, uh, in a city that seemed remarkably empty, uh, and I wasn't sure exactly why, I met Lester. It was the only day I met, I, the only day I would ever see Lester. It was the only time I spent time with him. But I would never forget him, because Lester changed my life in one day. And it had a lot to do with what I'm just mentioning. And it's kind of my way, perhaps today, of honoring um, the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. So after we come back from our first break, I will tell you the story of Lester. Come on back. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. Today's episode landing on uh, the holiday this year for Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And uh, talked a little bit before the break um, about the civil rights movement and how I grew up learning about it, even though I was born after its heyday and in the 1970s and beyond. But today's story is connected to that. And I was really, as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today, I wondered, should I go back in history? Should I do all this? And then I remembered... Lester. And Lester, I'm sure, has a last name, uh, but I never learned what it was. I met Lester once. Uh, back in 1998, I was a graduate student at the University of Nebraska working on my master's degree in American history. And one of the things I had to do for that was I had to go work in an archive somewhere and you know get primary materials, documents from the past, and put together my master's thesis, which was going to roughly top out about 100 pages, and it had to be on a specific subject. And I won't bore you with all the specifics of that. But in order to do that, you know, professional historian, when you're learning how to do that, you have to learn how to go to archives and libraries and do research and show that you can take all of that and put it together into a narrative. And so I planned, as part of that, a three-week trip to Washington, D.C. to work at the National Archives, which is just outside of D.C. proper at uh, in College Park, Maryland. 
And uh, so I set that up, and the archives themselves were only open Monday through Friday. And I was going to be there for three weeks, which meant I had my weekends available, and it was a quick jump on the metro uh, train system there in D.C. to come into the city. And I was really excited to go because I'd never been to Washington, D.C. before. As I mentioned, I lived in Hawaii on the West Coast. Uh, Washington, D.C., for me growing up, felt like it might as well be as far away as, as Tokyo or Sydney or Moscow or anywhere else. So for me, it was really exciting to be able to go. And I, I already had the list of all the museums I was going to go to, all the Smithsonian's and that type of thing. But I was also there on, out on my own. And uh, so I was brand new at this, at this history thing, really kind of finding out if I was going to ever be, actually be, ever be able to be a historian, would I like it, all that kind of thing. And then I was exploring a city that was so consequential in history. And I knew I was going to be blown away by all of it. So I was, I guess, not so much bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but just very new and feeling very new and feeling both excited and uncertain as I flew out on my own to this major city that I had heard so much about, knew so many consequential decisions had been made within its borders. And uh, it, I felt really small, but also really excited to go out there. And so, so I flew out there, and it was in uh, February, <laughs> which, which is not the best time to visit Washington, D.C., um, the weather is terrible. There's not a whole lot going on. It's before the cherry blossoms arrive. And uh, it's also not exactly the most active time for congressional sessions either. So there wasn't a lot going on in the city. But um, the first weekend I was there is when I met Lester. And I, I did a week uh, at the National Archives. And then I knew on Saturday morning I was going to get up and go into D.C. And I knew where I wanted to go first. I wanted to go to the Lincoln Memorial because, of course, the Lincoln Memorial may be one of the most iconic images uh, of Washington, D.C., among many. The Washington Monument, of course, is also big. But they're right there on the mall, right? And I knew all of that was there together. The Smithsonian's were down there. So, But I was going to go to the Lincoln Memorial first. One of the reasons why is because some of my earliest images of the Lincoln Memorial connect back to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, which took place right in front of the memorial there on the mall. I wanted to go to that spot. I wanted to stand there. I kind of like to do that, like places that I've seen in historical footage. When If I can actually go there, I like to stand in the spots where those things happened. It somehow makes it a little more real for me. Maybe some of you are similar that way. So I made a beeline for the memorial, and I got up really early to do it. And uh, I know that's going to be amazing for some people who know me to hear. But I was on the Metro uh, Saturday morning at 630 in the morning to go out there because I was going to spend the whole day in the city. And so I bundled up. It was cold. And it was I remember it was a very gray, wet day. Uh, There wasn't a lot of snow on the ground, but there was some kind of that post snowstorm after a week and a half where there's areas of white punctuated by, you know, dead grass and little patches of ice that you have to step around. And there was a bite in the air and a little bit of a wind. And so I was scarfed up, you know, had old ratty gloves on because I was a poor graduate student. And, uh, and this, of course, is before, before Internet, um, the phones, and before even cell phones, that type of thing. So I was just kind of going in and exploring. So I got down to uh, the station, get off the Smithsonian Station to, um, to go up to the mall. And so I walked up onto the mall really for the first time and kind of took it all in. And I remember kind of doing that 360 spin, looking around and seeing the, the Capitol building at one end and off in the distance, 
the Lincoln Memorial at the other end and the Washington Monument, almost equidistant between the two. And sort of marveling at the whole thing and knowing I was, you know, far too early for the Smithsonian's to be open, I made a beeline for the Washington Monument. Not realize, or excuse me, the Lincoln Memorial. Not realizing until I got close down there that on either side flanking the Lincoln Memorial are memorials to the Korean War and, of course, the much more famous memorial to the Vietnam War, the Vietnam Wall, um, done by, uh, by artist Maya Lin, and it has all the names of every person who died in the Vietnam War, 60-odd thousand names. I didn't realize they were that close together. And as I was walking down towards Lincoln Memorial, several things struck me. One, there were very few people out on the mall, and that seemed to surprise me. I just always had this vision that the mall would always be full. Uh, that was the first thing. And, and second, that it was, <laughs> it was bitterly cold. <laughs> I remember that very, very, very much, very profoundly. But I also knew that it, something felt really important about continuing to go. And as I got closer... And I saw the Vietnam Memorial. I actually walked past it, stopped and looked at that first and kind of went its whole length moving towards the Lincoln Memorial. And it's just as powerful as everyone says it is um, to see name after name after name on that wall. And I knew enough about history at that point that I was very aware that this is the era of Vietnam was the 1960s into the 1970s, the era of the Vietnam War, the counterculture movement. Uh, and really that divide between the generation that grew up that right after World War II and their parents' generation that grew up during the Depression and, and earlier. Uh, and they seemingly had very divergent views on the nature of America and its future and what was right and wrong in some cases. So I was aware of the significance of it. So I saw it, and there were very few people there at all. And again, surprised and also pretty happy about that. There was something about being able to stand there with very few people around that it felt like it was just for me. And I, maybe that sounds foolish in retrospect, but there was something powerful in the moment where it felt like all of that there was just there for me to see that day. So I went up to the Lincoln Memorial and, and walked around, you know, the dais where Lincoln's form is and, and marveled at the columns and read the inscriptions from the Gettysburg Address and others, all while stamping my feet and keeping my, my hands warm. So I did that and I went out and I sat down on those steps and I remember, you know, kind of thinking to myself, where was it that Martin Luther King Jr. stood when he did this? And, and thinking about all of that. And I was sitting up there for a while, taking it all in. Again, very few people around. And I was looking out over the mall and at the far end of the mall, coming towards me, along the side of, of the, where the, where the Vietnam Memorial is, if you're facing out from the memorial, and facing towards the Capitol building, the Vietnam Memorial is on your left. And there's a pathway. It starts up on the mall. It kind of drops down, and the wall expands, right, so that as you come down, the wall gets taller and taller and then narrows again the closer you get to the memorial. Up on the pathway that I had walked down, I saw someone in a wheelchair slowly moving towards the memorial. And I didn't think much of it. I continued to watch. And then the person stopped at the top of the hill before the slope came down. And I kept looking, and I was wondering if there was a problem or anything like that. And, and for whatever reason, after a few minutes of that person not moving, I wondered if there was something maybe that was wrong. And so I, I got up from where I was, and nobody was around at the wall. It was just him at one end or this person at one end and me at the other. 
I walked down and I went the whole length and I walked up towards him. And I saw that it was a man, black man, in a wheelchair. Uh, and it appeared that at least one of or both of his legs were missing. And I walked up the slope to him and he was sitting there at the top. And I, I said to him when I got close, I said, I said, do you need some help? And he looked up at me and it was, it really took me aback. Tears were pouring down his face. I took him in in one moment. He was, uh, he was dressed in old uh, military fatigues that were really torn up. He, uh, he himself didn't look like he was able to take good care of himself. He was very, uh, you know, kind of a scraggly beard look to him. Looked like he hadn't bathed in a while or hadn't been able to clean himself in a while. And he had a ratty backpack attached to the back of the wheelchair. And he had, you know, fingerless gloves on his hands and a scarf that was, I couldn't tell if it was, had been red or brown, but it looked like he'd been wearing it for years and it was torn to tatters really. And tears were pouring down his face. And so I asked him, are you all right? And he said, all he said was, I just need to get down there. And I, I didn't know what he meant. And I said, I said, down, down the down the hill here he said I need to see the wall I came this whole way to see the wall I said okay uh and I and I and he said there's there's it's too steep and I'm worried I'm gonna slip and there's ice and um I don't know what to do so I volunteered to help him I introduced myself and he told me his name was Lester Lester was from Mississippi I do remember that um and he'd grown up in a rural area uh, about an hour and a half outside of Jackson, the capital. And he had gone to Vietnam in 1966. So on the other side of the big escalation, but prior to the, uh, the, the, the big moments like the Tet Offensive in 68 and, and like that. So he was there during the big escalation under uh, Lyndon Johnson. And he'd been drafted like many uh, his age and you know, who were rural and did not have access to education, weren't in college or anything like that. A lot of people could get exemptions if they were that, if they fit that criteria. He did not. And so he went to Vietnam and sure enough, he had lost his legs there in Vietnam in a, uh, in a explosion along the Mekong Delta when uh, he was helping, uh, helping supply a PT boat that was out in the river uh, a river craft and they were attacked. And in the explosion, the mortar attack, he lost his legs. And all of this, of course, I came to glean as time went by. First thing in the moment, I said, I'd be happy to help you. So I got behind him, steered him down to the bottom, the wall. And as we started moving down, he would just have me walk for a couple of steps and turn. And he'd look at the wall. And then he'd tell me a little bit of his story. And so this was a kind of a cadence that developed. We'd move a few feet. He'd look at some names. He'd tell me a little bit of his story, move down a little further, that type of thing. When we got down to the flat, the tallest area of the wall, uh, it occurred to me that maybe he was looking for some names. And um, so I asked him, I said, are you looking for any specific names? And he said, uh, he said, yeah, there's a few guys that I knew who, who died there. And that's why I came all the way here. Turns out Lester had spent the little money he had to come to DC to see the wall because he felt 
deep in his bones that he was not going to live much longer. He had a lot of different health problems. His kidneys were failing. He had emphysema. He was not in good shape. And he didn't have family around to do this for him. And so he had, against the, uh, against the advice of the caretakers he did have, that, which were essentially wards by the state, he'd gone AWOL from the, <laughs> the building he was staying in in Mississippi and had spent his money on a bus ticket to come up there. And he had just arrived before I met him. So he had no idea what to do uh, other than he needed to see this wall. And so he had no, there at either end of the wall, there's, there's places where you can look and you can see, uh, you can find names, right? So you can look up the names alphabetically and it'll tell you which section of the wall they're on. He didn't know that. And so I, I told him and I said, what are the names? And he took out a, a piece of paper on a sketch pad that he had and he'd written them down and he handed them to me. And so I went up and I had my own pen with me. And so I wrote down the locations and we went to go find them. And the first one we found uh, was a friend of his and he told me the story. I don't remember the details of, of each of the stories, but the one we found first was the friend who had uh, died when he had been wounded, same attack. And he had some paper. Of course, you might have seen there's there. You can take paper and do rubbings uh, against the wall to get the names there. I did that for him. I did that for him three or four times uh, that visit. But it was very emotional for him, as you would expect. And he asked me to give him his backpack. I gave him his backpack. And, and for each one of the friends that he found their name on the wall, he took something out of his backpack. One was a deck of cards. Another was just like a single bottle of whiskey. Uh, you know, and you put them at the foot of the wall. There's a lot of little tributes there. So I did the, all those things and I put them there for him and he kept thanking me, kept thanking me. And of course, telling me pieces of his story as we went along. And when we got to the final one and, and laid all that, you know, I took the rubbing and put down his, his tribute, you know, to put at the wall. I was by this point really moved and um, really interested in knowing more about him. And I turned back to him and I said, well, what, are there more? And he said, no. And I said, is there anywhere else you want to go? And he said, I would really like to go up and see the Lincoln Memorial, if at all possible. And I said, okay. And he says, that probably doesn't make any sense to you. And I, I said, well, I, I said, I wanted to see the Lincoln Memorial too, um, because he was so important. And, and he, he goes, I, well, he says, well, I want to see the Lincoln Memorial because I want to believe still that this country can be better than it was then and better than it is now. And then he went into a long discussion, and I kind of let him go, about the difficulty of being a black man in Mississippi in the 1960s, but how crushing it was for him growing up to recognize and learn that it had been the same for his parents and the same for their parents and their parents and their parents, that it had been a condition of his existence and his family and everybody that he knew for the most part for as long as they had all known about their family histories. And then as he put it to be sent to Vietnam to die for a country that didn't want to treat me as equal or in some cases in the South treat me as I was human. He said, I'll never forget this. He said, I felt like I died before I ever got to Vietnam. And he said, and you know, and, and he said, the reason I went is because of people like Dr. King and Medgar Evers 
and Muhammad Ali. People who were willing while I was gone to advocate for me. And I went to fight for them more so than just about anything else and to, and to show other people that I could be a loyal American who could fight equally hard, equally passionately, equally bravely, willing to lose my legs. And he said, he told me, he said, I don't, I don't regret going to Vietnam. I had to prove to myself that I was more than what I had been told I was my whole life. That what people's versions of history had told me I was my whole life. I had to know that I was a human being. And to do that, I had to go be a human being and be the bravest a human being can ever be asked to be. And then when he got back, of course, in the years after that, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, but he also remembered the Voting Rights Act being passed. And I asked him, I said, what kept you going after all of that? He said, the fact that all those things got passed and that more and more people were supportive of civil rights and equal rights, and then people began to talk about making sure that other groups of people got those, that women could get equal pay and equal treatment, that gay people could be recognized as legitimate and not be discriminated against. And he went down a whole list of people. He said, there was promise there, and there is promise there. He says, that's the thing that keeps me going. So I took Lester to the Lincoln Memorial. I took, got him up the, you know, the, the pathways that you can get up there past the steps to get to the dais. And I put him in front of Lincoln's form, which is just towering. And I stood there with him, and after a minute, he just looked up at it. After a minute, he said, can, can you just give me a minute? And I said, sure. So I stepped away, and there was again, nobody around. It was just Lester and Lincoln in this big cavernous space. And what I will always remember is the sound of Lester sobbing as he looked at Lincoln's form. And he kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I went to get him after a few minutes and I brought him back out. We came back out and he looked out and he said, this is where Dr. King spoke. And he looked up at me as I was standing next to him and he was smiling <laughs> and crying. And he said, I can die happy now. I spent the rest of the day with Lester, or at least you know, a good portion of the day. But then he had a ticket to go back to Mississippi that day. Last I saw Lester was at the bus station in D.C., a handful of blocks away from the mall. And I was so caught up in the whole thing that I never asked for his address to write him. I never got his last name. He never offered it. <laughs> He knew me as JD. I knew him as Lester. And that was it. And he left and got on the train or got on the bus, I should say. I went back to the mall and sat there for a while. I didn't go to the Smithsonian's at all that day. I saved that for another day because I had to absorb everything that I had experienced. It was my first experience in my life meeting any person any black man who had gone to Vietnam 
or who could talk to me about what it was like to live in the South in the 60s, what it was like to be inspired by the Civil Rights Movement. He was the very first human being that I, could talk to me about that firsthand. And I vowed in that moment it wasn't going to be my last, and it hasn't. But nevertheless, I will always remember Lester, and I'll remember what he taught me and the experience that he gave me and the fact that at least for, for one day, he and I had Washington, D.C. and I, to ourselves. It was great. So that's the story of Lester on this Martin Luther King holiday. When we come back, uh, I'll give you some updates on where I'm at and uh, send you off into the rest of the week. So come on back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you, kind of swinging around the final turn, headed for home. And in this final segment, uh, as I'm going to be doing more and more going forward, kind of giving you a sense of where I'm at. And thanks for listening to that story about Lester. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here feeling the emotion of that day again and all the gratitude for it and, and all of that and, and how much I learned it was way different than just learning about something in a textbook. It was getting the experience of somebody and he was in such a state and such a place in life that it was very real and raw for him. And, and I'll always be grateful for his, his honesty and also grateful for the opportunity to meet him. Uh, and wherever you are, Lester, I love you, man. Thanks for, uh, really changing my life. All right. So where am I at? That is the, the last you know, segment of what, what's going on with me. Well, you know, last week I talked a little bit about Abraham Lincoln and where I was thinking about that. But I also mentioned that I would talk about the play that I'm writing. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about where I'm at with the writing side of things. That's how all this craziness of doing podcasts and all these things I'm doing got started was a handful of years ago. Uh, I decided that rather than sit around and wonder if I ever could have been a writer of fiction the way I'd wanted to be since I was a, a little kid, as much as I loved history, Instead of waiting, you know, wondering the rest of my life I could do it, how about I just go ahead and do it? And so I did, and I wrote, uh, <laughs> makes it sound simpler than it was, but I, I wrote an alternate history of fiction novel uh, called Crella's Inferno that, that I've talked about before on this show, and you can read more about it, including the prologue to it at wordsbyjdk.com. I wrote that, and as part of the process of kind of learning how to maybe get my name more out there and, and things like that, you know, build a website, do a podcast, talk about those things. That's where all that started was was 
to really put my writing forward. And as I mentioned last week, I do lots of different forms of writing, not just that type of fiction, but also poetry, essays, short stories. I've really kind of thrown myself into just exploring the various crafts and the various expressions in writing. And uh, of course, along the way, the podcasts have come along, the coaching certification that I'm doing has, has come along, which has opened up a whole series of pathways for me, which I can happily say I'm not doing anything in my life right now that, that I don't enjoy. And that's, that, that's a good thing. That's, that's, life, that's a good life, if we can say that. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Right now, though, the, you know, the writing part is, is a bit of a challenge, uh, mainly because I have these other moving pieces. And writing takes uh, intentionality, right? And, and, and not all, I'm not always in the mood or in the concentration point to be able to write. And, and, uh, but one of the things that, that I've been working on for the last couple of years is, is a play. It's a five-person play. It's a prequel to my novel. It literally takes place literally hours before my novel begins. And it has the same main character in it, uh, Garen Krella, who's um, the main, the main person in the book, but he's also the main person in the story. And, um, I had the whole thing in my head, the whole thing envisioned, like what the stage would look like, how everything would be laid out on the stage, what kind of the theater it would play in. And there's nothing grandiose about it. It, it seems to me to be something that would do really well in one of those small theaters that holds like 150 people, as opposed to something, you know, much bigger than that. But nevertheless, um, I have the whole thing in my mind of where it was, where it's going to go. And, uh, it's a take on the old Faust legend, right? The story of Dr. Faustus who sells his soul to, uh, Mephistopheles, the devil, you know, for success in life. And in that original story, Mephistopheles comes back to Faustus at the end of his life to claim his soul. It's time (laughs) pay up. And of course, Faustus does not want to go and wants to talk his way out of it. Um, you can look that up and, and read it yourself if you would like. But nevertheless, it's kind of based on on that. And I don't have all the time to go into it here, but mainly if we want to talk about where I'm at with it, uh, I'm at a point where with that play, I, I touch it, you know, probably weekly, spend a little bit of time on it. It's a different form of writing than writing a, a prose narrative or, or certainly writing poetry. And so sometimes it can be a little bit of a shift. And one of the things that um, I've been trying to do to get unstuck with it, besides give it a little more time, is uh, find better ways to, you know, get all the ideas I have in my head faster out onto the page. Because sometimes I'm writing what's in my head. I think it sounds really good. And meanwhile, I'm not typing as fast enough as the words are going by in my head. And I don't have a photographic memory, so I can't just like ticker tape them across my eyes and type them. I don't have that kind of skill. And so uh, what I started doing in the last couple of weeks is using voice activation software to just talk these things out and have them appear on the page at least in rough form so I can get them out there that I can go back and trim them and, and that type of thing. So I've been doing that and that's been, that's been proving a bit more successful. The, the, you know, I want to keep the, the story small enough, five characters and short enough that it can be really engaging for an audience. Cause it's not like it's a musical or anything with dancing. It's just simply dialogue. That's all it is. So I figure about a 90 minute, play to two hours would be the, the maximum I would want for it and it would have to be engaging and funny and uh, at least visually interesting enough for uh, people to stay engaged with. And so it has me looking at all these other elements of storytelling 
that I don't often think about when I'm writing. When, when I'm writing narrative, um, I'm writing and painting a scene. You know, if it's happening in a location, I'm trying to set that. Um, with a play, I kind of have to have that already set up and talk about how to write about it. So sometimes it feels a little unwieldy, like, you know, the, the equivalent of if I'm driving a car in fifth gear, trying to slam it into first gear, you know, out of nowhere. It's not the best idea to do. And sometimes um, the gears grind that loudly uh, with it. But nevertheless, it, it is something that I am finding taxing. Uh, you know, and it, and it has me asking questions to myself of perhaps I'm trying to do too much in too many directions when it comes to writing. At the same time, um, I've, I, I spend, I spend time reading and listening to fellow writers who have been successful in various genres and in various ways. And, and I'm always keeping my eyes out open for common threads, whether it's in the things that they say, I look for common threads in history because I tend to think those common threads is where the truth of things can be, you know, um, you know, from people of different backgrounds, different ideas, different writing styles, different histories. If there's common threads in there, that usually tells me that there's something worth holding on to. And one of the things that com- the common threads that comes from these writers is just simply to write, keep writing. And it reminds me when I do that. And it reminded me when I was working on this play the other day, it reminded me of the larger question that I've always had to ask about writing. And I talked about this with other writers that I know, and I talk about it with some of my coaching clients who are interested in, in, you know, creative growth is why, why write in the first place? I don't think it can simply be, I'm going to write so that I can make it big one day and write all these books. And I never have to have another type of job. And I just get to do that and then go on speaking tours and then maybe sell the rights to people who want to make movie or television versions of it. That can be a goal, and certainly that would be great to have happen. But I have found that when I'm writing with that in mind, or with that hope, first and foremost, not only do I have difficulty engaging in it because it seems so daunting because I'm far away from that, but I also don't, it doesn't produce quality writing. What does produce quality writing is when I sit down to write because, as I tell myself, I have a story to tell or I have something to express if it's poetry or I have a scene I want to set. I have something I want to talk about. And oftentimes, sometimes, that can be me trying to work something out for myself. Poetry can be for me a way to give words and structure to feelings, ideas, thoughts that are just racing around in a mess inside me. And it gives it a pattern. It gives it a picture. It helps me let it go. It helps me put it up on the wall, if you will, if it were a picture. My best writing comes from those spaces. And, of course, the hope is is that you put out that enough and get enough people to read it that one of these days something can happen that can give you another step forward to being able to do it more often, uh, it would be great to be doing it profitably, but I can't sit in that space I'm finding of hoping for that, you know, and it's the same reason I don't sit in the space of doing this show or doing the other podcasts that I do breaking up with RBS with that in mind either. It has to be quality in what it is. It has to be honest in what it is and truthful and connected and meaningful. It has to be accessible for people first, whether it's writing, whether it's doing podcasts, whether it's, speaking to them, 
It has to be all those things first. Otherwise, those other things won't ever follow because they'll come across as exactly what they are, fabricated, artificial, staged. And it's a constant battle. I know I've done podcast episodes and others where I've had more of that staginess up front rather than the more open, connected, vulnerable part of me that is so vital for me to allow out if I want to really have a productive podcast episode or a really good uh, piece of writing emerge. And so where I am with that this week is trying to remember to tap into that part, to write and create and put forward from that space of, I have a story to tell. I have something I'm trying to work out in me. I have these things, the feelings that I just want to express. I'm inspired by something and want to see what comes out of it. I find when I do that, not only do I produce things that I'm more proud of and that I like and that resonate, but more opportunities seem to come up around them. And so I'm going to keep focusing on that. And so where I am with that is I love what I'm doing. I love all of these things. I'm continuing to make the time to work on these things. Even sometimes it's just writing a sentence or spending 15 minutes or five. Other times I say, I only got 15 minutes and all of a sudden I spend two hours. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I love those things and I like to give my sp- myself the space to do those. And then the last thing I'll say is the thing I have to remind myself with that is that when I step out of that, when I'm done, I have to remember that connection for me is also a very real thing and I need real people for that. So I need to reach out beyond that internal creative space and connect with people to make calls, to, to go visit people, to get together with friends and, and with family. So, uh, yeah. So if you can relate to any of that, whether it's about writing or anything else that you're doing, we'd love to hear from you about that and hear where you're at or hear, uh, some stories that you would like to tell. You can come on the show and tell them, or you can tell me and I'll be able to, to tell them, or I can research them for you and, and be able to tell them. Uh, would love that. And you can find, uh, find access uh, to me via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also reach out to me via email from wordsbyjdk.com and would love to hear from you. So thank you for doing that in advance. Thank you for joining me for this episode on this Martin Luther King holiday. Uh, this episode of the, this show is all about you. I want to make sure that I do all the thank yous that I always feel like I need to do. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is, as always, my in-studio producer, editor, mix master. Thank you, Eric. Show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Please check them out at airside.org. They're doing amazing stuff. And the original theme music for this show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week goes to Julia Cannell, Tawny Dave Santabria, Bruce Bullard, Ann Foster, Ashley Niebel, Seth Mormon, Emily McFetridge, Adelina Popescu, Monica Kukova, Katie Beck, and Eric Prima. Thank you again to Lester, wherever you may be, my friend. You opened my eyes and changed my life for the better. Thanks, too, to all my old friends and colleagues from my old academic days. I love all of you, and I do not say often enough how important you are all to me then and now. Thanks also, of course, then to you listeners. Without you, I could not do this for you. So let's finish off the week and send you into the week with an original haiku. Here we go. Our lofty ideals become real or stay naive by our choice alone. Chins up, everyone.